Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I am Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in lovely Northfield, just outside of Chicago. And I have a uh, wonderful new episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show to bring to you today. Sorry I missed you guys last week, but that leads into this week. Uh, as I spent a little bit of time down in Atlanta, Georgia, greeting my first grandchild and lovely granddaughter, Ruby, who uh, we're going to take note of today in our show while we also address the Grateful Dead and, of course, what is going on in the world of cannabis. Um, So we're going to dive right into things now uh, with our opening clip today, which is our friends, even though, again, we are the Deadhead Cannabis Show, uh, the other big jam band that has now uh, begun to occupy my life, uh, Fish, and back on July 14th, 2019 at Alpine Valley, this happened. again from July 14th, 2019 at Alpine Valley up in East Troy. And because part of today's show is going to be in honor of my lovely granddaughter, Ruby, born last month in Georgia, uh, my son Matt is a huge fish fan and his wife, Elena, enjoys them too, if not quite to the same degree. But they both love this song, which may or may not have been the inspiration for their daughter's name, uh, depending on who you listen to. Regardless, Ruby is wonderful and her father is already playing this clip by her bassinet. And she just lays there and smiles. She knows good music when she hears it. There's a, there's a strong fish connection that runs through my wife's side of the family. Uh, I talk about her cousin Susie and cousin Amy and all of them who uh, live out west and love fish. So it's only natural uh, that as my son has the first girl born on my particular line of the uh, Michigan family in about four generations, uh, we celebrate accordingly. And so uh, a great way to say Welcome to the world, Ruby, and uh, hope you're going to be listening to my podcast when you're old enough to listen, assuming Dan and I are still around doing it. Um, But I'm not going anywhere, and I don't think he is. So uh, there's more than enough Grateful Dead songs to cover uh, over the Grateful Dead shows to talk about and other great stuff. So you go ahead and uh, be happy and be healthy, and we're looking forward to playing with you when you're ready to play. As far as this song goes, Fish first performed it on June 18th, 2019 uh, at the Budweiser stage in Toronto. Of the 164 fish shows since that debut, the band has only performed it a total of 27 times. Less than 2% of the fish shows actually played since its debut. 
Uh, most recently, uh, just a month ago, October 11th, 2023, at the Irwin Nutter Center on the campus of Wright State University in Dayton. So not only was seeing this song a rarity, but this version on this date is particularly well known as it's from a legendary show at Alpine Valley. Uh, and this prediction of particular version of Ruby Waves runs an incredible 38 minutes and was only one of the many highlights from that show, which also featured a huge Olivia's pool breakout, among other big moments. Uh, you should check out the clip, check out the show. Uh, when you hear Ruby Waves, think of little Ruby making her new appearance into this world. But we're also talking about the Grateful Dead today. So, Ruby, the first lesson you're going to have to learn in life is that if you come on my show, you usually have to share the attention, even though you get to go first. And the attention now shifts to the Grateful Dead, as in the deadhead aspect of our show title. And we're diving in with a show uh, that took place 44 years ago today on, uh, uh, excuse me, um, November 6, 1979. And the show is from the Spectrum in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, which is the site of many a uh, wonderful Grateful Dead show. Uh, and the show that we're going to play today is no different. 1979 was a year of big transition for the Grateful Dead, uh, right? We went from Keith to Brent and Donna dropped out. Uh, it was the year of Jim Marty's first Grateful Dead show. Uh, and some almost under the radar amazing shows, including this one, Tell me who this sounds like. An 11-song first set followed up by a four-song second set plus drums in space. So who do these guys think they are? Fish, right? That's what Fish does. And a strong encore. Um, but here's how that show started. recognizes Alabama Getaway, uh, a dead favorite and uh, a long-standing Garcia tune uh, that would get played with a decent amount of frequency. Um, but however, this clip is only the second time the song was ever played in concert, the first being two nights earlier on November 4th at the Providence Civic Center in Rhode Island. Uh, the song would finally be released six months later, uh, April uh, 28th, I believe, 1980, on the Dead's album, Go to Heaven. It was ultimately played by the Dead 143 times, uh, and that was with an almost five-year gap from 90 to 94 when it kind of inexplicably fell off the radar. Jerry brought it back to the stage for a handful of, handful of performances in 95, uh, including the last one on June 2nd, 1995 at Shoreline Amphitheater out in Mountain View, California. 
Um, I've always loved this song. It's got great cultural references to Alabama's complicated legacy, uh, to well-known entertainer uh, Bill Bojangles, and of course, uh, a little uh, biblical reference to the 23rd Psalm, uh, and, and more. It's a great up-tempo tune, usually played as a show opener, although it was known to move around from time to time, you know, depending on Jerry's particular feelings or mood on any day when he wanted to play it. Uh, we extended this clip out a little bit to catch the, the Brent uh, breakout during the jam, even right from the very beginning. You can just hear Brent is all over the place with his keyboard. And, and what's significant is that this is 79, so Brent is new to the group. Um, he hasn't even had a, a, a full year uh, with the dead, and he's demonstrating he's not shy. He liked to make his presence known with authority. And, you know, from the very beginning, I think uh, you can hear that uh, he was a natural with this group and, and, and slid right in uh, after Keith and the dead parted ways. And, you know, I don't like to say that the dead didn't miss a beat because not like, you know, when they switched from Pigpen to Keith, uh, there's always a change in, in the way the band plays. And then again, when they, they, they switched from uh, Brent at the end to Vince. But, uh, you know, Brent came in and just, was always all over the place, uh, making his presence known and bringing that wonderful sound. I think it really uh, helps this tune and, and just takes it to another level. Um, and Jerry is just, you know, in a great mood, really ripping it. His voice sounds great. Uh, and, you know, when he plays a song like this and he, and he really rips on it like that, you, you kind of know, I think, you know, right, the deadheads who are out there like, this is going to be a good night. Jerry's opening with this. Uh, and he sounds right on top of it. Let's uh, kind of sit back and see what else he brings to the table. And in this particular show, he brings a lot. Um, speaking of particular shows, right now is absolutely incredible time in terms of what is going on with releases by the Grateful Dead. And, you know, for those of you who don't necessarily keep track of this thing because uh, you just go to archive.com to listen to all of your, your tunes, Nothing wrong with that. You listen to the dead wherever you can find it, uh, whatever works best for you in your particular situation. Uh, as I've often discussed, I'm a sucker and I buy all of this stuff because uh, it's it's Grateful Dead sound being released on CDs. Um, and we know we have our friend out there, Charlie Miller, who makes the, uh, the, the tape sound great and God bless him. Uh, but this is coming right out of the dead vault and, and right out of the dead productions. And so uh, I enjoy having it and having my collection of it. Uh, again, you get all the cool art, you get all the wonderful and very uh, fact informative uh, uh, liners or little booklets they have in there that are always written by somebody, sometimes with the dead, somebody in the band, sometimes somebody from the outside. And it always gives you such a great perspective of what's going on. And they do an excellent job of pulling all of this stuff together. David Lemieux, of course, is the, the mastermind behind it these days. And, you know, if you're not listening to his Today in Grateful Dead history uh, every night during the week at uh, what, 6 p.m. here in, in Chicago, so 6 p.m. Central Time, uh, you're missing out on a lot of good stuff because, uh, uh, again, when he, when he does his uh, Grateful Dead of the day, he's not, uh, excuse me, Today in Grateful Dead history. He is... Um, He's just picking a show that, that closely correlates, if not exactly on the date, um, you know, and sometimes there's, you know, really killer shows, sometimes not so killer. But one of the great things about David is he has the, the background and the experience for a guy who started seeing the dead after I did. 
you know, so in a, in a lesser amount of time, it, obviously an obsession for him in a way that makes Rob and I look like pedestrians, I guess. Um, but, but David knows it all, man. And, and, you know, he's the guy with the access to the vault. So we just received, uh, you know, those of us who have the annual subscription, which again, I would, I don't know why I tell people to do this because it just works against my best interest. But for God's sakes, if you're not buying the subscription every year and trying to buy it when it comes out, maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. I don't like to have to worry about it. I just buy it at the beginning of the year. And we just got the final release for 2023. And in fact, it's a show that we are going to feature um, in a couple of weeks coming up here. It's a show from Poly Pavilion on the UCLA campus in Los Angeles from November 20th, 1971. So look for this show uh, uh, two weeks from today, and uh, we'll be taking you through the release and uh, all the great tunes on there. There's even a little uh, uh, bonus disc thrown in there uh, with music from the Keel Opera House in St. Louis, Missouri. And being from St. Louis, I love it anytime they release stuff from St. Louis, Missouri. And that's got some good stuff on there, too. Uh, still with pig pen belting it out. So uh, we'll have a chance to dip into all of that. Um, but yeah, Polly Pavilion, the Grateful Dead, L.A., Bill Walton's there, I'm sure. Um, he was probably still in school. He was still in school at the time. In fact, in 71, people might have just been discovering who Bill Walton was. Uh, but nevertheless, the dead go in there and, 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 um, and, and lay down a, a, just a tremendous show. Um, but the significance of all of this and the subscriptions is, is that right now, um, until November 15th, you can still get your subscription, your uh, full year subscription for the four Dave's picks that will be released uh, in 2024. And while it may sound like I'm a shill for the Grateful Dead, I can assure you that nobody at the Grateful Dead knows who I am. Uh, well, that's not true, I guess. Um, you know, we, we've, we've had uh, um, uh, David Gans on the show and, and uh, you know, he's certainly over there and Rob Bleatstein and he's certainly over there. So I, I take that back a little bit, but I'm not sure that David Lemieux has uh, quite figured out who we are yet, but I just push it all because I think it's really great stuff. And people always say to me, you know, what's the best way to listen to the music? And I said, you can go on, you can go on archive.org, you know, and if Charlie touched the tape, you know, it's going to be great. And it's, it's going to be really, really good. I just like to go with these because I'm interested in the show that he's interested in. If Dave thinks this is a good show to release and I haven't heard it, um, I'm for sure going to pluck it down. So uh, they just released the final Dave's picks of the year up to number 48. So they're already uh, three years more than Dick's picks, which stopped at 36 and was releasing for a year. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they've just dropped a show uh, independently uh, that's not part of the Dave's Pick series, not part of a box set, um, but it's a fantastic show live from RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C. on June 10th, 1973. And we've talked about this show uh, before on one of our episodes or more because, um, first of all, 1973 is just an amazing year for the Grateful Dead. Uh, as, as many of you know. Uh, second of all, uh, this is a historic show um, because if you're just looking at the show itself, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a very long show. There was a 13-song uh, first set um, followed up by a 10- uh, or 11-song second set that, that just is amazing in terms of song selection and, and the way it's all played, uh, but really put, puts this show over the top. Uh, is the third set. And this is really a third set. It's not like a three-song encore or anything. Uh, but what makes it really special is that Dickie Betts and Butch Trucks of the Allman Brothers uh, step out on the stage. The Allman Brothers had played at the show as well. Uh, and then Dickie and, and, and Butch 
uh, came out to play with the boys um, for the uh, for the third set with great, great stuff. Like it takes a lot to laugh, a train to cry. That's all right, Mama. Promised Land, not fade. Going down the road, feeling bad. A little drum solo for the boys and for well, not really for the boys, right? This would have just been Billy right now. Mickey was out for a little while, uh, but with Billy and Butch, uh, back to not fade away. And then of course Johnny Be Good, which everybody knows, loves, and can play. I haven't had a chance to listen to this yet. I mean, I've heard the song before, but uh, the show before, but not uh, being able to sit down like this and listen to it all the way through on uh, some high quality output output but i am looking forward to that and uh, uh maybe sometime in the next year or so we will get around to featuring this entire show um but it's just great to see they're releasing this uh, earlier this year they released their uh here comes sunshine box set with five shows from 1973 from the spring 1973 tour um which is one of my favorite grateful dead tours coming one year after basically timing wise with the europe 72 tour uh you know and really establishing at least at that part uh, that time of year um as being a very creatively uh rich and uh many great options that the dead just put out during that time and so it's really fun to hear and it's great to hear and you know god love dave and the dead for for, for releasing all of this stuff for us to be able to have um you know my wife probably wishes it wasn't quite so much and and, and you know quite so often um but you know it's great to have in the house and it's great to have uh, available not just for me to pull down and listen to, but if somebody comes in and says, hey, do you happen to have a recording of such and such a show? And given the proliferation of Dick's picks and Dave's picks and all these other independent picks like this uh, RFK Stadium show, it's not uncommon for me to be able to say to somebody, oh, yeah, here, let's listen to this. Uh, Dave's picks 48. You wanted to hear that Polly Pavilion show? No problem. We got it. And it's nice to not go to the computer and download it, but actually be able to have it. And if somebody wants to read the little booklet inside and learn about the show and all that stuff, uh, it's right there for them. And, uh, you know, that's just a great thing. So thanks to the Grateful Dead for releasing it. I just strongly encourage you all, if you're a fan of the Grateful Dead, uh, there's no better way to really put yourself in a position uh, to hear as much and learn as much than by going after some of these dead releases. Um, but that's all. And Dave, if you're listening, I would love it if, you know, maybe there's something from the vault that, you know, you like to send around to guys who help, uh, support you, but if not, that's okay. We'll still keep listening and buying your CDs. Uh, you've got me hooked no matter what. And it's just the way it is. Um, but, uh, let's dip back into our show here from 44 years ago today. Um, and we're going to listen to, uh, another highlight of this show. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a well-known song. So Dan, let's go ahead and hit it. Keep 
so as I say, one of the highlights of this show, and, and maybe in a few minutes, I'll, I'll just run through the set list just to show off some of the, uh, just how wonderful this show is. Um, you can again hear Brent jumping right into the mix with his backing folk vocals, his strong keyboard work, f- filling in gaps, just a wonderful sound. The very beginning of basically 10 years of uh, the Brent Midland era with the Grateful Dead. Uh Jack Straws, who we've talked about in the past, was written by Bobby and Robert Hunter. It was never released on a studio album, but was released on uh, the original Europe 72 album. Uh, when the song first came out, Bobby sang all the vocals. But at one of the early shows on the Europe 72 tour, May 3rd, uh, in Paris, uh, that night, Bobby and Jerry began trading off vocals on different verses. And it stayed that way until the end. And that was the only way I had known it uh, for a long, long time until uh, my... Uh, 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 interest in uh, deep dives with the Grateful Dead got me to that point where you would just hear Bobby singing all of it and wondering where the heck Jerry was. But um, I, I love Jerry's uh, verses that he sings on this, and and, and Bobby's are good too, but it's, it's the two of them trading off, I think, uh, which doesn't happen on a lot of Dead songs. It really, really makes this one uh, such a good one, and I, and I really think such a, uh, a fan favorite. The song would traditionally appear uh, in the first set, uh, but initially it would appear in first and second sets. But after the, the, the one-year hiatus in 75, uh, the song at that point almost exclusively appeared in the first set. After Brent joined the band in 79, the song almost exclusively opened the band's first set. Uh, and the band often extended the jam after the second verse, after Midland's joining, often extending the song to well over six, seven, maybe even eight minutes. Uh, Dead and Company have also further extended it often adding an abstract opening jam prior to the song's first verse. And I will tell you that I don't like those extended abstract opening jams. Um, I know some people do, but I love, one of the things I love about a dead song is recognizing it as they're coming into it, as they're leading up to it, right? So that you hear it and you, you know, you, oh my God, here's what they're going to go. And you know, maybe one day we can even have a show about talking about that because even as I find myself going back and listening to dead tapes from any era, as I'm listening to them or, you know, on the radio or whatever, um, and they're, they're rolling from one song into the next long before they launch in to a song. It, it's, you know, if you know what you're listening for, there, there are clues aplenty to tell you where they're getting ready to go. Um, you just have to listen to it. And Jerry sometimes tries to trick you by playing the opening chords of the next song and then immediately diving back into something else for a few minutes as they noodle around. But when, 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 you, when they do these extended opening jams that then lead into the song, you're just listening to a jam and all of a sudden they start singing the song. And difference of opinion on this, I'm sure. A lot of people say, hey, look, this is the new sound. This is the way these guys want to do it. It's still them playing the music. And I don't argue with anybody. I'm just giving you my own personal feeling on it. Um, Dead and Company used to do it very much so, and Phil still does it with Mountains of the Moon. And one of the most wonderful features of Mountains of the Moon, and I've talked about this before, so I'll keep it short, is the beautiful, um, uh, um, the, the beautiful intro on the um, uh, harpsichord. There we go. See, if you think about it long enough, the words will always come to you. It's such a beautiful, beautiful opening for that tune and sets the mood for that tune and gets you ready for that tune. And Phil is out there doing, you know, or or dead and company, just this long drawn out general jam. That's great. It's a good jam. I'm not saying I'm not having a good time listening to it. And then all of a sudden they make a hard right into mountains of the moon and it's very jarring. And maybe that's their intent is to make it jarring. I don't know, but it's jarring to me because 
where's the harpsichord opening if you're going into mountains of the moon you know and in jack straw again the, the opening notes the opening chords of this song are so distinctive that you know you can't miss it and you know what they're going into and so at any rate that's just a whole lot of uh extraneous uh venting about uh dead and company and phil and other people trying to change around jerry's music after he's gone although i guess bobby wrote a lot of this music too so can't really complain too much other than just personal preference um now interestingly in a 2004 interview bobby stated that the song's lyrics were partly based on john steinbeck's novel of mice and men the song's themes include riding the rails the great depression uh, home hobo homeless camps of the era Jackstra is also, perhaps coincidentally, the name of the original plantation owner who lived controversially with his gay lover, uh, Peter Ocello, in Tennessee Williams' play Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Long a staple of Life Dead shows, it was first heard on October 19, 1971 at Northrop Auditorium in Minneapolis, another legendary show due to, to due to it being both Keith's first show with the band and the large number of breakout tunes that night, including Tennessee Jed, Mexicali Blues, Comes a Time, One More Saturday Night, and Ramble on Rose, along with Jack Straw, uh, continuing and new wrinkles to their Americana style that began a year earlier with the release of American Beauty and Working Man's, and now reflecting Keith's newly introduced input from the grand piano. Uh, they ultimately played this song 476 times, so you know it was a favorite. Very, very high up on the list of most played dead tunes. Last played on July 8th, 95 at Soldier Field in Chicago. Um, just a classic Grateful Dead tune. And, and in the context of this show, all the comments that I read about it uh, list this Jack Straw right up there uh, as one of the high points of the show. So another tune to, to go back and focus on if you're inclined uh, at least to focus on the tune or to listen to the entire show. Um, but I realize it's been 20 minutes since I last talked about my granddaughter, Ruby. So I'm swinging right back to that right now, because quite frankly, in my life, there's not a whole lot more to talk about at the moment that carries, uh, you know, the same significance. She, uh, She's here. She's wonderful. We love her. And um, by God, I wanted to go out and find some songs that I love that have Ruby in it, too. And this next one uh, that we're going to jam on right here for you um, is a Jerry Garcia tune, this time being played for the first time ever by The Grateful Dead. Yeah, 
Yeah, so Sweet Ruby, dressed in red, one of the main characters of this Garcia Hunter song uh, that was first released in April of uh, 1978, I want to say, as the opening tune on uh, Jerry Gar- uh, the Jerry, Gar- Jerry Garcia Band's only studio album, uh, Cats Under the Stars. Uh, interestingly, Run for the Roses is considered a... Um, a solo album by Garcia and not a JGB album. And the earlier ones are also could basically considered solo Garcia albums. So cats under the star is the only album that's officially credited to the Jerry Garcia band. And this is the song, uh, that was the breakout on that album. Um, Although played with some frequency by Jerry and uh, the Jerry Garcia band uh, almost 80 times, the Grateful Dead only played it four times uh, in concert. This clip uh, from March 17th, 1991 at the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland, uh, being their breakout. It was last played on June 19th, 1991 at Buckeye Lake Music Theater in Thornville, Ohio, a show my good buddies John and Marnie were at. A classic tale of love found and lost set in the carnival season in New Orleans. Beautiful lyrics for a sad and cautionary tale. Uh, Sorry to say I never got to see it live by the Dead or even the Jerry Garcia Band. I have seen it since performed uh, once by Phil and once by J-Rad and uh, maybe another time out there. Very nice, um, but not close to the same. Jerry's voice is part of the story, the way he sings it and the way he tells it and the way he the way he plays it and it, it, it's really a beautiful tune um and uh uh have always liked the fact that um it it, it, it speaks to this love story and this you know um almost a well not really romeo and juliet i guess kind of thing but you know kind of because there is uh um two people who love one guy and you know how it all has to play out and uh my feeling is is that if uh, my ruby was the ruby in this story uh that she would come out the winner big time but we'll never know because um we don't have uh, mr hunter or mr garcia with us anymore to expound on that and we just have ruben and sharice as it is and either way it's a beautiful tune i love it and i will also be playing this one for my granddaughter um because i think it's a fun story um if told the right way so um <laughs> Uh, Ruben and Charisse, we don't get to talk about that song or, or, or that side of Jerry very often. Too bad it was only four times. Um, but again, uh, a great tune to go out and listen to uh, if you have the opportunity. Well, we have, we have reached that part of the show uh, where we are going to switch over now and uh, talk about the wonderful world of cannabis. So, Dan, what have you got for us today? Ruby started rocking about one o'clock, and when she started rocking, she just couldn't stop. She rocked on the tables and she rocked on the floor with everybody yelling, Ruby, rock some more. She's a rock and roll, Ruby, rock and roll, rock and roll, Ruby, rock and roll. When Ruby starts rocking, it satisfies my soul. Nice. Love how he's got right in with the whole theme of the show today. That's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Ruby's going to love hearing that too. More fun music. So um, thank you for, uh, for sharing that with us. Diving into the world of cannabis news, we've got some uh, very interesting stories today, some surprising stories, and another study that we're going to share with you guys where you just know I'm going to have a good time talking about that. So let's start off by swinging our attention out west. And uh, I want to just thank again my two primary sources of uh, 
uh, Cannabis News, MJ Biz Daily, and Marijuana Moment uh, for uh, bringing such uh, so many stories to the attention of those of us that are looking to learn more about the cannabis industry. Of course, the big MJ Biz Daily uh, conference is coming up here um, uh, very shortly, the expo out in Las Vegas. Uh, I will not be able to make it this year because I'm spending a lot of time down in Atlanta hanging out with Ruby. Um, but Dan, uh, Dan Humbiston will be there. So um, if you happen to bump into Dan out there, be sure to tell him how much you love the Deadhead Cannabis Show and all of podconnects.com and all of my fellow podcasters on the, next, on the, uh, on the network that he has set up for us. Um, so California, what do they do out there? Well, Governor Newsom uh, rejects marijuana marketing curbs, but he also rejects consumption lounges. So what does all of this mean? Uh, this past weekend, Governor Newsom spiked a bill that would have imposed new marketing and packaging restrictions on marijuana products, but he also nixed an industry-backed measure that would have permitted marijuana cafes dealing a major setback to retailers and consumption lounge operators. Meanwhile, social equity applicants, licensees, and advocates are celebrating the passage of Senate Bill 51, which provides social equity operators more time to get their businesses up and running. So some good news there, some not so good, kind of a mixed bag. But they, uh, we start off with how the cannabis companies and advocacy groups fiercely opposed Assembly Bill 1207 that was sponsored um, by Democratic Assembly member Jackie Irvin. The legislature would have the legislation would have added several new product labeling and packaging restrictions, including banning images of cartoons, toys, or robots, real or fictional humans, fictional animals or creatures fruits or vegetables, except when used to accurately describe ingredients or flavorings. In his veto, Newsom Newsom expressed concern uh, with the term attractive to children was being used in an overly broad manner. By prohibiting entire categories of images, this bill would sweep in commonplace designs, and I'm not convinced that these additional limits will meaningfully protect children beyond what is required under existing law, he wrote. Um, so, you know, I guess this is a little contentious one way or the other. And, you know, I, I think that we've talked about it in this show and been very, very clear uh, that you want to be in this industry exceedingly careful about not packaging your products in any way that will, would appeal to children. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody's going to go running out and start using cartoons or, or you know, SpongeBob or something like that in a way uh, that will attract children to it. Um, but what it does is it says, look, you're, you're painting with too broad of a brush. And, um, you know, as, as Justice Potter Stewart said uh, from the Supreme Court many years ago about pornography, you know, I know it when I see it. And I think that here, um, you know, people can see uh, images that might be used in advertising or packaging that do cross the line. And just because something is, is in a cartoon format uh, or depicts um some sort of a, a robot or a human or, uh, you know, any kind of an animal doesn't automatically make it kid-friendly, um, you know, in that regard. And, and quite frankly, you know, I would like to think that, uh, you know, the marketplace tends to work itself out with these types of issues, right? If one group comes out with advertising or something uh that, that everyone else says, no, you know, maybe you're allowed to do this, but, you know, we think that this crosses the line in terms of what's appropriate. You know, there's ways to push back. You know, Joe Camel was a classic example for Camel cigarettes where, um, you know, even people who were smokers pushed back on it and the industry pushed back on it. And ultimately Joe Camel went away. 
Um, and, you know, nobody's suggesting we should be going after kids. And again, we, we all very, very strongly support the idea uh, of, uh, you know, 21 or older. Some people would say 25 or older. Um, but certainly, I think uh, my personal opinion is by the time somebody's 21, they're old enough to do everything else this country asks them to do. And yes, there may still be questions of brain development, but people are drinking at that age. People are doing lots of other things. Um, and, you know, people who exercise smart and reasonable behavior, uh, use substances uh, in the appropriate amount and not to extremes that uh, 21 is fine. Um, and so, uh, you know, on, on all of these types of issues, right, we have we have pictures of humans on lots of products and, and, and even on alcohol, uh, human names, and, and sometimes pictures can be prominently displayed. Uh, but the whole point is that, again, you know, it puts you in a very uncomfortable position because people aren't arguing, yes, we want to make it available to children. What we're arguing is, you know, wait and see what we do before you get so quick to start passing uh, categories of things that apply exclusively to the cannabis industry uh, and, and not to other industries out there, right? I mean, there's people who would argue that packaging on candy, uh, you know, needs to be uh, very closely monitored in the way candy is advertised or sugared cereals, because all of those products contain high volumes of sugar and other things that maybe we don't want our children eating all the time. And I'm not trying to make a comparison of giving my child marijuana versus giving my child sugared cereal. What I'm saying is, is that they can all have their downsides. But with marijuana, we seem to overly emphasize the need uh, to address that as opposed to other categories of products consumed by underage people, by children, people under the age of 18, that many people would not consider to be otherwise good or healthy uh, for them to be eating. Um, but nevertheless, uh, in this instance, uh, Newsom, I believe, correctly struck down that portion of the law. Um, and no surprise that the uh, California Cannabis Industri Industry Association uh, was particularly happy uh, at the approval of a much, le much less stringent proposal, uh, SB 540, which mandates the state's Department of Cannabis Control to routinely review cannabis labeling standards and develop brochures highlighting certain risks of marijuana use. Um, AB 1207 posed a significant threat to the industry with excessive restrictions, inadvertently favoring the illegal market and depleting critical tax revenues earmarked for youth deterrent programs. CCI President Pamela Epstein said in a news release, Pamela is a, 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 an old friend and a former member of the uh, Hoban Law Group as well, and it's always nice to see her out there speaking, and I trust Pamela's judgment on things and uh, agree with her in this instance. Uh, now we turn to California Assembly Bill 374, uh, and industry officials and companies had expected that Newsom would approve this bill, which would have allowed California marijuana retailers to operate traditional kitchens and host events on their premises, much like the cannabis cafes in the Dutch city of Amsterdam. The proposal by Assemblymember Matt Haney of San Francisco also would have ushered in major operational changes and potential new revenue streams while serving as a possible template for other states that have struggled to establish consumption lounges. In the end, Newsom vetoed the legislation consigning concerns over smoke in the workplace, but he encouraged Haney to address that issue in follow-up legislation next year. I am concerned that this bill could undermine California's longstanding smoke-free workplace protection, he wrote. Some industry officials view the governor's position as a double standard, since outside beer gardens, bar patios, and other venues, the state often allow cigarettes and other forms of non-cannabis smoking. Also, California marijuana consumers 
routinely smoke in public, particularly in its largest cities. Anti-tobacco forces have conflated the harms of cannabis smoke with cigarette smoke with little evidence, and this bill was one of the victims. Ellen Comp, Deputy Secretary of California Normal, stated. Now, you know, let's go over this because I think we're also missing something here. Uh, if you're talking about a private facility, the owner of a private facility can allow smoking. So the people who are coming in are coming to smoke. The question is, are their employees prejudiced? And who are these employees? These employees who want to be able to apply for a job opportunity, but want to be able to avoid having to be in a smoky environment. Well, I would suggest that somebody who doesn't want to work in a smoke-filled environment is not going to want to sign up to work in a cannabis consumption lounge. You can't take away the smoking to accommodate them because without the smoking, there's nothing there. So it's just like we have uh, adult bookstores and there's many people out there who would be very much offended and, and, and very turned off by the idea of, of, of adult bookstores. But we can't say that we're not going to have adult bookstores because people who are uh, anti-adult bookstore are prejudiced because they can't work there. So, you know, this is that, that, that's really kind of uh, a silly thing, right? One of the other things that they failed to mention that, that we have here in Illinois, and I imagine other places around the country, are that cigar stores very often have a section of the store where people can go and smoke, sit down and smoke cigars. Uh, you know, they can try one and see if they like it before they buy a box of them, or they just want to come in and, and try a cigar and, uh, and pay for it and sit down and smoke. And they, they can't smoke in their building. They can't smoke. They don't want to smoke it out on the street where people might say something to them. So there, there are all sorts of situations where we have indoor smoking. I, I, I cannot agree with Governor Newsom on this one. And I, I you know, look at it and kind of say, you know, maybe he's playing politics here. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but to kind of base it on the fact that uh, it creates a smoke-filled work environment uh, that, you know, based on a law that's designed to protect people from that, this, this is not that type of a situation. And again, uh, somebody who would come in and say, you're not accommodating me. Well, the only way to accommodate them is to not sell what the store is designed to sell, which means then there's no need to have the store in the first place. So we'll see what they do um, and uh, we'll, we'll see where they go from there. Uh, and then finally, of course, we talked about Senate Bill 51 uh, that's going to uh, provide social equity operators with certain types of relief and it'll extend uh, the DCC's provisional license program and allow retail equity applicants or licensees to obtain or renew provisional licenses for up to five years under certain conditions. Um, provisional licenses especially provide a path for businesses to continue operations and maintain state compliance while they apply for their annual permanent uh, for their annual permit. So again, uh, another good step taken by uh, California there. Glad to see that happening and that they're reaching out and they're going to help people in that way. Um, moving on, sometimes you get shown the light in the strangest of places, if you look at it right. A well-loved snippet of the uh, lyrics from uh, Scarlet Begonias of the Grateful Dead. And check this out, folks. This is an issue we've been talking about for a long time. Hemp-derived cannabinoids, right? The 2018 Farm Bill said hemp and all of its constituent cannabinoids are no longer on um, the controlled substance list and from federal legal perspective are considered to be legal substances. The hemp we all know about. 
but the derived cannabinoids, the cannabinoids derived from hemp. And guess what? We know that one of those cannabinoids is THC because it could be up to 0.3% in hemp. And long after this was passed, not long after, but after this was passed, savvy business people out there, uh, savvy lawyers like Bob Hoban uh, and others immediately began focusing on this and saying, well, if I go around and start pulling off enough 0.3% from all of my various hemp plants, I can put together a pretty good chunk of Delta 9 THC. And because I've derived it, derived it from a hemp plant as a cannabinoid, it's legal. And this dispute has been been raging back and forth. It includes Delta 8. It can, 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 uh, includes um, all different times of THC uh, and, and all of these substances that we've seen uh, that have all been manufactured out of hemp-derived cannabinoids. And people are having a fit over it because, well, that's not what we meant. That's not what we intended. And we've talked about how that's the, that's the legislators' problems if they don't sit down and do their homework and understand the nature of the laws. Nobody pulled a fast one on them. Nobody came in and said, oh, this will never be able to be used for these purposes. They came forward and they made the proposals that they wanted passed. Uh, the federal uh, government said yes, and so did a lot of states. And now people are pretending like that they got blindsided. But guess what? A court down in Georgia, of all places, has ruled that hemp-derived cannabinoids are not controlled substances. So therefore, hemp-derived cannabinoids, hemp cannabinoids such as Delta-8 and Delta-10-THC could be legal to sell in Georgia after the state's court of appeals ruled such products aren't controlled substances. The decision follows a Georgia crackdown on hemp-derived THC products that included a 2022 raid on retailer element distribution. The plaintiff in the case, according to some of the news reports out of Atlanta, the Gwinnett County District Attorney's Office, which worked with local authorities in the raids, still could appeal the decision to the Georgia Supreme Court. After passage of the 2018 Farm Bill, which federally legalized hemp, states have taken different approaches to regulating hemp-derived cannabinoids. Nebraska is cracking down on sales of hemp-derived products containing more than 0.3% THC. And a federal judge recently blocked an attempted ban on the products in Arkansas. How do you like that? Another state in the South that's 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 uh, the judiciary swinging our way. Georgia passed the state's Hemp Farming Act in 2019. So the uh, Elements dis, uh, Distribution Attorney uh, told one of the local news stations down there that this is a powerful message for folks around Georgia, that these are legal products. The legislature specifically legalized them in 2019 and that law enforcement has no authority to go after businesses that are legally selling these products. So yeah, thank you. Thank you to the state of Georgia. Thank you for the state of Arkansas. And you know, for any other judge out there that understands that as, it, that as we look at it right now, under the existing law today, all of these products are legal. Even Delta 9 THC, which comes out of a hemp, that is a hemp-derived cannabinoid, is legal and has to be considered legal until there's a full-blown change in the law. Local law enforcement has a lot of problem with that. And I've talked to uh, many a criminal defense attorney, and sometimes they even have problems with it. And I don't blame them because they actually work in the world where all of this goes down and takes place and where you're, they're the ones dealing with the police and the district attorneys um, and, and judges who either don't understand or aren't willing to understand the very simple proposition that even if there's THC involved, if it's derived from a hemp-based cannabinoid, it's not illegal.
Certainly not again until the law has changed. So, you know, a court down in Georgia, fantastic. And we'll take it. And they don't even really have much of a program down there on the on the cannabis side right now. Um, they, they do have a medical mar- a marijuana program, but it's one of those that's only allowed to sell low THC cannabis oil. Uh, flowers and edibles are still banned um, in the state's medical marijuana program. But Again, this is a huge, huge ruling, and right now it's only effective in the state of Georgia, and it may not be the law if the uh, Georgia Supreme Court uh, gets a hold of it and decides to overrule it, but we're going to hope that the uh, Georgia Supreme Court won't go down that road um, and that that's not something that they're interested in doing. But time will tell, and we will see. But for right now, tip your hat to the state of Georgia and its judicial system down there for standing up for the hemp people uh, and their rights to follow the law, as we all know now know what it is. I've got one more story for you, and this story is another one of these studies that I love because it just kicks the prohibition people right in the balls, and the arguments that they like to make and that they think they're making and that are so infallible that nobody could ever disagree with them don't work out for them. So guess what we just found out? A new study by Quartz Advisor, an auto uh, insurance review company who uh, looks into all things uh, uh, auto insurance related, conducted a study that found that traffic rates fell in states that legalized marijuana, while those that crept, kept criminalization saw slight increases. Let me read that for you one more time, folks, because this is not just me getting up on my soapbox and yelling to the heavens. States that legalized marijuana in 2016 saw meaningful declines in traffic fatalities during the years immediately following the policy changes, according to the study by Quartz Advisor. So, ultimately, the paper concludes that motor vehicle safety should not, should not be a significant concern for marijuana legalization initiatives, especially when measured against alcohol. And how many times have we talked about the fact that this is not a discussion to say that we endorse intoxicated driving of any kind, but a recognition that people in this country do drive intoxicated. And we would rather in that circumstance, if they're going to drive intoxicated, we as a society should favor and and emphasize and demand that it be cannabis intoxication and not alcohol intoxication. And here we go with another study showing us this very, very significance. So as of yet, studies have failed to show that the legalization of cannabis has resulted in any significant increase in traffic fatalities in the place where where it has been legalized. However, the same cannot be said for alcohol, an intoxicant that remains legal, widely available, and deeply ingrained in our culture. Uh, the findings which are uh, which just came out um, examined traffic fatality data from four states that legalized adult use in 2016, California, Maine, Massachusetts, and Nevada. Uh, they then compared those states' vehicle death rates to the national average, as well as to rates in five states where marijuana remained illegal during that period, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Nebraska, and Wyoming. In the three years following the change, the report says, none of the four legalized states saw an increase in traffic deaths. Most, in fact, saw declines. Three of the four 
uh, of those states saw a significant decrease in vehicle deaths over that span, the paper says, while the rate in Maine showed no change. Massachusetts saw the biggest drop as rates fell 28.6% in the three years following legalization. Combined, the four states that legalized marijuana saw an 11.6% drop in traffic death rates from 2016 to 2019. That's a sharper decline than the national average, which only fell 10.6% in those over that same period. And it's a far better outcome than in the five states the report examined where marijuana remained illegal, which together experienced a 1.7% increase in their combined traffic death rates from 2016 to 2019, an increase. So now the report does note that the picture gets a little muddier when looking at traffic years 20 and 21, because in those years in these states that legalized uh, that the, uh, um, uh, the vehicle death rate did increase during those two years uh, with legalized marijuana in those states, although less than in the U.S. as a whole. Uh, and the five states where cannabis was illegal um, uh, had the same numbers basically as before. However, when we look at this, we say that, that what the report says, not me, I didn't do this study, they did, that 2020 and 2021 are anomalies, and this remains true in vehicular accident trends. After decades of declining accident rates in the U.S., traffic fatalities picked up in 2020 and stayed high through 2021. The U.S. as a whole saw traffic fatality rates spike 18.9% from 2019 to 2021. States that legalized marijuana in 2016 saw a similar increase of 19%. States that have not legalized uh, and are probably more rural than ones that did. So I actually saw vehicle death rates fall 2.3% over that period. So although some increases did occur in marijuana legal states, uh, they're actually uh, completely consistent with traffic fatalities and spikes around the country during that period of time. Uh, so uh, we look at that as an outlier uh, much more than uh, what we were able to establish that happened before. Again, nobody's talking about driving intoxicated. Nobody's endorsing and saying, it's okay to get really high and go drive your car. But what we are saying is that it's important to understand the facts. Quartz advisor called the observations interesting and nuanced, uh, but ultimately limited. So the publication talked to Judy Waters, Public Information and Consumer Outreach for the Maine Bureau of Insurance, who cited a casualty actuarial society report from December 22 that examined data from the U.S. and Canada from 2016 to 2019. The test for the decriminalization effect on fatalities failed to, to detect a statistically significant change, the report says. Similarly, the analysis showed no statistical increase changes in the average cost per claim and claim frequency after marijuana legalization in Canada. Here, here, here's, the, here's the important point. Quartz advisor report said, while there is no evidence to suggest that legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana makes roads more dangerous, here's the important part, important part folks, that is not to say that it is a, that it is safe to drive while under the influence of cannabis. Everyone agrees. In reference to a 2010 meta-analysis published in the American Journal of Addictions that found marijuana caused impairment in every performance area that can be reasonably connected with safe driving of a vehicle. Oddly, however, that doesn't always seem to make driving behavior commensurately more dangerous. The 2020 casual actuarial study found that while marijuana does affect driving, the behavior is not always riskier. 
For example, it leads to slower speeds and longer following distance of impaired drivers was what we've seen. The American Journal of Addiction included a similar report in, in a caveat. They said, surprisingly, giving the alarming rates of cognitive Cognitive studies, most marijuana intoxicated drivers show only modest impairment on actual road tests, it says. Experienced smokers who drive on a set course show almost no functional impairment under the influence of marijuana. So, hello, what are we talking about here again? Not to say that I would go tell my kids, hey, get really stoned and then I want you to drive home. Like anything else, if you smoke, if you drink, you need to be aware of what your own limitations are. And you need to be prepared as, as anyone who's going to use this intoxicant to understand and know when you've reached a limit that where you're no longer safe. Okay, in the uh, context of drinking, it's very clear what that limit is, uh, 0.8% measured by a breathalyzer. There's still not an accurate way to measure it in marijuana, although there is. We've talked about the blood tests and how they can measure the metabolites and whether uh, there's more of the hydroxy or the um, uh, uh, the other oxy, which I'm sorry, I can't think of off the moment, which can actually tell, uh, apart from whether you have THC in your system, uh, whether uh, it's currently producing uh, a psychedelic effect. So it's not as though these tests don't exist. They do. But folks, these are tests that are coming out from people, from groups uh, that represent insurers. They are the ones who are most motivated to look for a problem and to say, if you smoke marijuana, right, if you smoke cigarettes and buy health insurance, your rate goes up. So you would think that if these studies find uh, that there's more danger for people who smoke marijuana and drive, that they would test for marijuana and your rates would go up. That's not happening. Their studies are telling them, okay, I guess we don't really have to worry about this so much, but we're very worried about people who drive while drunk who drive while under the influence of alcohol. So again, the bottom line is nobody advocates uh, intoxicated driving, but as a society, we need to recognize and understand and accept that when people go out and get intoxicated, we as a society are far much better off if they are then subsequently on the road under the influence of marijuana, as opposed to being under the influence of alcohol. It's just that simple. That's what these studies say. You can like it. You cannot like it. It doesn't really matter, but you can go out and try and do your own studies. But until you do, let's stop the hysterics and let's stop all the craziness that we, that always surrounds the idea that legalized marijuana is going to result in more traffic deaths and bigger problems for people. Until we say that nobody can drink and drive, we have no business trying to say that people should not smoke and drive. Now let's get back to the Grateful Dead, goddammit, because all this good marijuana news has made me hungry for something good with the Grateful Dead. And there's few songs out there uh, that will make deadheads as happy uh, as this next one that we're gonna play from our concert on November 6, 1979 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia.
Just a beautiful Hunter Garcia epic, multi-part suite, with Hunter composing the lyrics basically during a single sitting one night in the midst of a rare Bay Area lightning storm. Uh, On the same day, driving across the Richmond San Rafael Bridge, Jerry Garcia was struck by the idea for a singular melodic line. He turned his car around and hurried home to get it down in notation before it escaped him. Hunter said, when we met the next day, I showed him the words that he and Jerry said, I've got the music. They dovetailed perfectly and Terrapin edged into the dimension. It's uh, a a song that that tells a beautiful story, uh, like an English folk song, the lady in the fan section, based on the lady of Carlisle and the bold lieutenant, uh, which are well known from uh, earlier English times. Um, the lady decides to choose between two brothers who love her by determining who is braver. She tosses her fan into a lion's den and asks them to retrieve it. Hunter was also influenced by Sir Walter Scott, who had composed, uh, was also also influenced by Sir Walter Scott, composed Terrapin in two parts. The second part never recorded uh, or performed by the dead. Uh, Drummer Billy ironed out the arrangement, explaining we sat down and mapped it out. Uh, this is how the song goes. I showed Mickey all the parts that I felt worked really well. He added a couple, and that's what the song is today. We went back into the studios the next night and got it right. With the drum parts worked out, everything else snapped together like puzzle pieces. It's the opener of a four-song second set. It's right, a four-song second set on this night in uh, Philly. Uh, this is a strong version uh, that they really jammed out, um, but not too much, uh, and it's such a show highlight. Uh, it's barely two years old at this point. The album was released on July 27th, 1977. It was first performed a few months earlier on February 26th, 1977 at the Swing Auditorium in San Bernardino. We've talked and played that ver- talked about and played that version before. Um, and uh, at this point, uh, you, you hear Garcia playing around with the timing of the lyrics and a little bit different with the music. It doesn't necessarily sound exactly the same as it ultimately becomes, you know, when it becomes so established uh, in the 80s and then into the 90s. It was ultimately played by the Dead 303 times. The last rendition also on July 8th, 1995 at Soldier Field in Chicago. A song for fans of fun tales of all ages. I also suspect that Ruby We'll become quite familiar with this tune over time. Um, and that's all we got time for today, folks. Uh, some great Grateful Dead, some great songs to my granddaughter. Uh, we're going to go out on uh, one final tune for my granddaughter. Um, this is probably one that if I asked you to think of a name with Ruby in the title, that 95% of the people would jump to immediately, except for the Fish fans. Um, uh, written by uh, Keith Jagger, <laughs> Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, Goodbye Ruby Tuesday. 
was first released on January 13th, 1976 as the B-side to Let's Spend the Night Together. Uh, the song ultimately became the, the band's fourth number one hit in the United States. It was originally uh, recorded with Brian Jones playing a counter melody on an alto recorder, uh, while the double stand-up bass was played jointly by Bill Wyman and guitarist Keith Richards, with Ryman, Wyman doing the fingering up top and Richards bowing the instrument. Uh, this version uh, that we're going to play here in one minute is from their 1991 Steel Wheels Urban Jungle Tour. Um, but before we do that, I want to just say thank you to all my listeners uh, for tuning in today to hear about my granddaughter, to hear about a great Grateful Dead show, uh, to hear about some wonderful uh, Grateful Dead music that's being released um, and uh, coming out all over the place. Uh, lots of good live music coming up as we head into the uh, uh, the winter holiday time of the year, and we'll be talking about some of those shows as well. Uh, two weeks from now, we will be talking about uh, uh, Dave's Picks 48, uh, which will match up with uh, from Polly Pavilion um, with our show that will we'll, we'll drop on November 20th. And with a little bit of luck, I hope to have... Uh, Good buddy, longtime friend of the show, but very rarely making an appearance. Alex Wellens coming on, uh, and Alex is going to talk to us about a lot of good stuff, some of the tremendous music he's seen lately, uh, as well as his experience at the Sphere in Las Vegas. And I have not been there yet, but folks, when I'm looking for reviews of music or musical venues, uh, Alex Wellens is number one on my list. Uh, Rob Hunt may be 1A, and I mean that with no disrespect to Rob Hunt. Uh, but Alex has kind of made a hobby of this. And uh, when you hear him in a couple of weeks, uh, you will know and understand why. So looking forward to that. Then some other great music coming up in December that we're really excited to play. And uh, we'll see who else we can find uh, on our guest list. So thank you again, everybody. Thank you for listening to my show today. Uh, thank you for listening to everything. nice thing I had to say about my sweet granddaughter, um, and frankly, we know this is the Ruby song that people listen to, so we're happy to go out and have a great week. Be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 
Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.